Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 142. It would be remiss of me not to say congratulations, Boca, on a gritty win over the All Blacks to become world champions for a record fourth time. With that said, picture the scene. We are standing on the western slopes of the Drakensberg, looking out across the Caledon Valley. The rivers we see here flow west into the Atlantic Ocean. Far to the southeast lie the villages of the Amatembu on the slopes of the mountains that are now part of the Transkar. This is a follow-up episode of a sort from episode 141, because last week we spoke about the Orange River and the Caledon as a tributary of the Orange. It rises in the Dragonsberg on the Lesotho-South Africa border and flows generally southwest, forming most of the boundary between Lesotho and the Free State province of today. The Caledon flows through southeastern Free State to join the Orange River near Batuli, after a course of 480 kilometers. Its valley has one of the greatest temperature ranges in South Africa. But in April 1835, Mushweshwe was eyeing the equally verdant land to his south, the land of the Amatimbu, and led a powerful and large expedition of more than 700 men, along with a 100 pack oxen loaded with food, southeastly over the Maloti Mountains towards these people. At first, his raid went according to plan. He seized a rich booty of cattle. The Amatembu were also facing raids from other directions, the British, who were conducting their Sixth Frontier War, so they were in a rather invidious position. As the Basutu withdrew after their Tembu raid, they were ambushed and lost most of their livestock. Worse, Mushweshwe's brother Makabani was killed and he suffered heavy casualties. Mushweshwe would never again send another full-scale expedition into Amakosa or Amatembu territory. This change in strategy was fully supported by the missionaries who'd begun living with Mushweshwe's people. What followed would be a remarkable partnership which is still hotly debated today and the interests of the missionaries would be further expanded or extended by the interests of the Basutu leader. As you'll hear, one of the main debates concerns theology. The Paris Evangelical Missionary Society became a partner in Mushweshwe's expansion. In 1833, the Reverend Jean-Pierre Pellissier had travelled north of the Orange and settled at Pethuli, about 8 kilometres below the confluence with the Caledon. That's about 200 kilometres south-west of Tababusiu and about 100 kilometres southeast of Philippolis, the Griqua settlement. In 1835, Reverend Pierre Roland of the Paris Evangelical Missionary Society, founded his own station at Bathsheba, near where the town of Smithfield is today, between Bethuli and Moria. As soon as the missionaries set up camp, they began to mobilize the resources to halt the Griqua expansion towards the Caledon Valley. For a while, Bathsheba was Meshweshwe's westernmost settlement. The excitement in France grew, Here were men making a difference, went the refrain, so more French missionaries began to arrive. Success breeds success, they say. In 1837, François Dumont set up his mission at Mokhatleng, which is about 60 kilometers northwest of Tabobusu, on the northern side of the Caledon River, just past where Klokalain is today. This was Sikonella's stomping ground, the old enemy, Mushweshwe's old enemy. The people who lived here were impoverished. They had been buffeted by the raids of the Karana, the Amazulu, 
Mzalakatsi Zamandebele, the Batlokwa, the Bataong. They were Sasutu speaking, basically refugees of defunct chieftains such as Mpangazita and Matewani of the Amangwani. There were also a few Tswana groups huddled around this settlement. Then in 1838 they were joined by a man who had a rather mixed and checkered history, Molitsani of the Taong. He was another of our historical characters who has faded away but definitely deserves a little touch-up, a new coat of paint. During the Difakani he headed up a group of warriors that had numerous skirmishes with the Ralong people under Saleka until the Mzilikasi pitched up and overwhelmed his men, dispersing them. Molitsani had fled to live with Adam Kok in the Transorangia region, then moved to Bethuli, then to Bathsheba, and finally to Mekwakling. Here he found like-minded survivors of the chaos of the preceding decade, mainly amongst the Taung people, and they began to integrate with other local people. Reverend Domar and Molitsani struck up a friendship, and because Domar was friendly with Moshweshwe, Molitsani was drawn into the regional alliance. The other reason why Molitsani sought out Moshweshwe was that he was slap-bang in the middle of his enemies, the Batlokwa and the Rolong, and these people were now part of the Wesleyan missionary ambit. They were based at Tabanchu, and the Wesleyans did not like the French. As Rachel King writes so lucidly in her 2017 Journal of African History paper, Moshweshwe was busy assembling his Basutu in the 1830s. In some ways, the Basutu of this period were in a pre-organization phase, with Moshweshwe drawing together pieces of fragmented polities in his region and binding these to him with strategic loans of cattle. This Mafisa system of clientage is where Moshweshwe lent out cattle and sheep to help followers sustain themselves to build up their herds, and these clients, or Moshlanka, had to repay Moshweshwe a portion of the milk or some of the cattle over time. They also had to pledge their labor and their warriors to Moshweshwe. He put minor chiefs in charge of cattle posts, which is quite similar to what the Amazulu were doing and the Amandebele. Moshweshwe also established marriage-based alliances through the payment of bride wealth and cattle, and by doing all of this, Moshweshwe was nation-building. There were two main social structures he deployed to reinforce this cohesion. The obligation embodied in the cattle themselves, and a newly forged ancestral mandate which put Moshweshwe at the head of the Basutu lineage. This basically means that cattle became ancestors, thus the Sasutu proverb that a cow is molimo o nke emetsi. Sorry about the pronunciation, but loosely translated, that means it is an ancestor with a wet nose, or God with a wet nose, if you like. Cattle raiding was a national pastime for Southern Africans in this period. Everyone indulged, as you know. Even the food trekkers and the English settlers raided the Amakosa and vice versa. For Moshweshwe, cattle were an integral part of how he set about building his Basutu. It's very important to stress that he was very focused on how he went about this process. Moshweshwe, let's not forget, gave himself his name. He made it up for himself as a skilled raider, replacing his birth name, Lokopo, with the onomatopoeic phrase, Shweshwe, which is the sound made when you cut or you share something. His name was allegedly changed from Lapoko after a successful raid in which he had sheared the beards off his victims. His praise poets sang his name and helped build his reputation as a leader and a warrior. Raiding was an acceptable way to increase herds 
and thus develop your stature as a leader, but this pastime was not allowed to become overriding of all else. The praise poets warned of how cows would drive mad the nations and warned about fixation and greed. This can only lead to ruin, they said. Raiders were balancing the actions between acceptable conduct and transgressing the acceptable rules, and if you did that, you'd be called a brigand or a droster. Secondly, if you raided too well and your herd swelled too quickly, you'd draw attention to your newfound wealth, your masses of bling, and this would make chiefs targets for raiding themselves, or perhaps more deadly, you could be accused of indulging in witchcraft. Mr. Eshwet kept only a small number of livestock around his great place at Tabobusu while he scattered the rest among his bashlanka and his cattle posts. Cattle were useful inside lineages where dowry received for a daughter was saved up and used to pay the bride price for a son's wife. Cattle are used as sacrifices to communicate with ancestors to cure illness and in 1839 they were the currency paid as fines for transgressions. This made cows the social agents in Basutu communities, and the web of obligations that tied people together through these animals was vast, complex, a tangle of liabilities that drew the Basutu nation closer. There was a clear distinction drawn between pillaging cattle for the sake of treasure and personal enrichment and the taking of cattle in a raid. The raid itself was not actually regarded as an anti-social act. Now, of course, this sounds strange. You have cows, you go outside, half are gone. Surely this is an antisocial action. Here is one of the most interesting friction zones between the peoples of South Africa. We have to consider that in informal economies, those at the edge of modern life, there's a big difference between what is illegal, illicit and acceptable. Yeah, the tension with colonial law, and we know how that has gone so far. So we're casting our eyes over these mountains looking over the border of this time, between Mushweshwe's western territories and the expanding Trekboers, there's obviously trouble coming between these two people. The Trekboers had already had their moments with the Amandebele, the Amazulu, and others. Mushweshwe's people weren't the only ones raiding along the Kaladin and the region. Some of the leaders who indulged included Makwani and Murusi of the Baputi and Mushweshwe's brother Posholi. Mokwani and his Babuti people are thought to have joined Mushweshwe in 1820. Murusi was an excellent horse and cattle raider, and the Babuti galloped many miles in their forays, all the way into the northeastern Cape and the Highveld. Mushweshwe had raided with them from time to time, and the Babuti supplied the Basutu with horses and trained them to use them. They were also proficient in the use of firearms, military tactics, a really useful ally. The Basutu raiding fraternity was fractious. For example, in the late 1840s, Mushweshwe's brother Pusholi would be excommunicated and called a brigand after he joined up with a group of San on the Basutu western flank and caused mayhem. Mushweshwe would later refer to Pusholi and his raiders as Boshulis, or dogs. So back to the cattle, which appeared to inhabit a metaphysical place moving between the physical and the spiritual. Basutu folklore is rich in this metaphor where the bond between a man and his ox was stronger than even death. One story goes that a man's neighbors were jealous of his wealth and cattle and schemed to kill him along with his ox. Both were abducted and the ox, whose name was Tololi Pachoa, which means black ox with white stripes and spots, urged the man to trust him and consent to his slaughter. 
The man was spared, the ox was slaughtered, but the next day the ox rose from the dead and returned to his master's kraal. A resurrection story of another kind. The missionaries who derived from the Paris Evangelical Missionary Society began to note other powerful belief systems. The Basutu believed lakes and other bodies of water contained spirits that were accessed by both humans and animals. The ancient deep waters, or Macholo or lakes, Lekotsa, contained powerful serpents, Noha Ea Metsi, and entire villages could be found under these waters. This is incredibly similar to the ancient Celtic belief system regarding bodies of water. For the Celts, natural sites of importance such as rivers and lakes and bogs were held as sacred as water was considered a conduit to the other world. For the Basutu, the chiefs of these otherworldly magic villages adhered to the same rules as the chiefs in the real world. They also demanded that bride wealth be negotiated through cattle. The narrative extended to warnings about crossing any boundary of water, the place where the physical and spiritual realms blend. Noha Eametsi could pull people into the water and they'd drown, but one of the ways to avoid that was to use cattle as mediators between man and serpent, or even transform the serpent into a man. Another well-known Basutu tale recounts the story of how a young girl was unwittingly given in marriage to a Noah, but this was discovered, and a group of men killed the new bridegroom. His mother managed to resurrect him by sacrificing a black ox. There's always been an intersection of rainmaking as a skill and the connection with snakes. Stretching back to the sand people and beyond, who knows? Some debate that it was the sand who received this divination belief from the Nguni and the Sutu. But whatever way this moved, there is a convergence of belief around what Rachel King calls a cosmological cognate of snakes as potent rain creatures. The phenomenon of rainmaking, according to the Basutu, is the work of the universal spiritual powers called Tlatla Makholo, Basutu's ancestral superhuman spirits, or their god. The Basutu believe there is a link between the past and the present, and thus, even when praying and yearning for rain, the past should embrace the present. Otherwise, the past does not link or inform the present, and therefore, it becomes difficult to predict the future. This is particularly true along the dynamic cultural frontier of the Maloti Drachenspirit Caledon. So interesting changes were taking place for the people of this mountain territory, driven by missionaries, both the French and the English. This is because the religion of the 19th century Sutu speakers was defined chiefly by an outward manifestation. The signs on the land, the animals, things going on that you can hear and smell, touch, see. Religion, as the Sutu tomb Borapele illustrates, was what people did and not what they believed. This is a fundamental foundational difference that stymied the first missionaries. The translation of Molima as God inaugurated a new era where there was a fixation on linear progression in an age of evolutionary thinking, where Protestantism was the theology. How does Molimo interlink with Tatla Mochilo? For the missionaries, this was an immense philosophical wrestling match. They solved it in a simple way. They put the Basuta religion on a lower rung, demoting it to a primitive stage of intellectual capacity. Only a higher religion, said the missionaries, has the complexity of an internalized form. Thus, a belief system in spirits lying in wait inside bodies of water 
was regarded by theologists of the 19th century as less developed than a belief system in things like the Holy Spirit. This is touchy territory, but it's caused a lot of frothing and foaming from folks who fixate on their own dogma. And as this was reinforced back in the 1830s and early 1840s amongst the Basutu, the translation of Molimo into God took place. A big issue facing the Basutu was whether or not the Protestant missionaries were correct in their translation of the word Molimo, a word which predated the missionaries' arrival. The concept held by the Basutu was that Molimo was a being who resided elsewhere, superhuman spirits, representations, or their gods, so naturally the Protestant missionaries converted this being to a god, as in the god in the Christian concept. But this implies is that the Christian missionaries were bringing a message of the divine into the Basutu, who had a prior notion of what this meant. So some concepts were transferred, but this is the crux of the big debate. One of the most famous missionaries, Robert Moffat, wrote that as far as you could see, the local Basutu referred to Molimo as Selo, or a thing, and more controversially, the terms monster and beast better captured Molimo as a notion, Moffat wrote. Morimo, to those who know anything about it, had been represented by rainmakers and sorcerers as a malevolent cello or thing, which the nations in the north described as existing in a hole. The other tradition of converting Molimo to God comes directly from the Reverend Eugene Casali, who was close to Moshueshwe. He also thought that the Basutu experienced religion as a thing. He wrote that the Basutu Mulima must be at the bottom of the creation ladder, so they need to be brought to the top. And as Kasali preached, the concept of Mulimo shifted from being an oral concept to one that was written down. The meaning of Mulimo, the water spirit, changed to Mulimo, the god. It also shifted further away from what the origin had been in ancient Basutu storytelling into a new formalized disembodiment from the material and written into meaning in the Basutu Bible. And this is Vetsapi, a man described as Moshoshri's advisor and diviner, re-enters our story for a moment. Thanks to one of my listeners, who is a descendant of Tsapi, by the name of Senapok, for providing some more background here. Tsapi was actually the first son of the Buffalo King tribal chief Sipipi. Tsapi had a sister called Mabela, who was Moshoshri's first wife. Tsapi became advisor and senior council member of Moshoshri. There's a link between the Bafo King and the Basutu, which runs even deeper. During the consolidation of the Bafo King, who were living at that stage close to Machalisburg, some left, migrating towards the west. So this branch of Bafo King would settle in today's Poking and Rustenburg, and the other would move to the other side of Rustenburg in a place called Glockweng. Bacha Mochali would also migrate to the far west from Buta Bute, settling in the place now called Bapo Ba Mochali as in Mahali's Berg. Mahali's Hook is a stunning part of Lesotho. It's down on the southwestern edge. I was fortunate enough to drive into Mahali's Hook in a 4x4 to film for UNESCO a couple of years ago, and I'll load some of the images on my blog for those interested. So Mushweshwe's biggest competitor along the Kaladin was Sekonyela of the Batlokwa, the man who'd been arrested by Pitra Tief. Stealing Dingana's cattle wasn't the only mistake Sikonyela made in 1837. He also raided the Korana leader Ghat Taibosh. Wesleyan missionary Thomas Jenkins had suggested to Taibosh that he move to the area near Mpokani and then Merumwecho. 
None the wiser about this Wesleyan link, Sekonyela's Batlokwa began to steal horses from the Karana, and this led eventually to a war that lasted over a year and a half. The Batlokwa was stuck in the middle, so to speak, and could not be neutral. Soon Taibosh was receiving active assistance from the Rolong of Morocco, the Griqua of Peter Davids, and a curious people called the Newlanders of Carolus Baiki, all of whom had migrated into the Mahokare Valley and its environs in 1833 and 34 under Wesleyan guidance. This is the vicinity of Smithfield and Zastron today. Molitsani's Taung settled near Mekwatleng in 1838 and were drawn into the conflict between the Batlokwa and the Korana. Throughout the war, the Tlokwa continued to harass their enemies by plundering their herds and flocks, while the Korana and their allies responded at intervals with swiftly executed and crushingly effective raids themselves. Tsikunela eventually paid a heavy price for his constant warring and raiding, and the fact that he was also trying to compete with Moshweshwe. For long periods, much of Tlokwa territory was deserted, and many of its inhabitants found refuge either at Wesleyan mission stations or swapped sides and went to live with Mishweshwe. Between 1838 and 1840, the number of followers living with Sikonela dwindled to around 700. For people caught in this kind of constant swirl of raid and counter-raid, there's a need to find meaning. There's a need to find reason. And this is where Kasali and his fellow missionaries served their purpose, so to speak. But it wasn't easy going. Tsapi in particular took exception to their theology, and the story goes that Tsapi and Eugene Kasali never got along during their entire time at Tabobusu. Tsapi was against Christianity, believing that the missionaries were going to divide the Basutu people instead of uniting them. His argument was that the missionaries should themselves learn about the Basutu god first, Tlatla Macholo, and the values and beliefs of the Basutu people. These concepts should be incorporated into their beliefs rather than the other way around. Tsapi thought that the French, or the Machoa, as they were called, the Dutch Reform Movement, or the Majache, and the Roman Catholics, or Maroma, would have the Basutu broken up by following these different versions of Christianity instead of having one god, Tatla Maholo. It's time to bring our story to a halt. Next, we'll circle back to Cape Town, focus a bit on the new British governor, the one-armed Sir George Thomas Napier, who was trying to manage a region coming to terms with the abolition of slavery. If you can, please rate the series on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility. To contact me, head off to desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on X at deslatham. Until next, Salah Huntley.